actually Psalm 139, which we just read, answers that question, but it answers it in a in a quite a surprising way in that it'll be different to how we would answer. It's not going to go and answer it in terms of our family, achievement, possessions, or even how others see you. And yet its answers, I want to suggest, are so much more satisfying. Who am I, Psalm 139 will tell us, is best answered not by looking inside me or by looking around me, but by looking above me, by looking to God. If you're a follower of Jesus... Psalm 139 wants to tell you that who you are is that you are someone known by God. That's who you are. You are known by God intimately and personally, and you are loved by God intimately and personally. That's who you are. Now, I'm going to spend some time unpacking that big idea from this beautiful psalm. It's one of the best, I think. So why don't you join me in prayer, and then um, we'll go through it. Father, we pray that as we look at these wonderful words passed down over thousands of years to us today, that you would speak as much through them now as you did when David first wrote them and Israel first sung them, so that we might know how much we are known and loved by you. Amen. <clears throat> now, I'm really glad when Derek read it, he also read the little italic bit right under the psalm, because that's part of the psalm when it says, For the director of music of David a psalm. They're actually part of the psalm. It's actually important, and especially for us to know that this is a psalm of King David. David, the great king of ancient Israel, wrote half of the 150 psalms in the collection of psalms, 150 of them, or as I like to call them, Israel's ancient playlist. All right? Now, Psalm 139, you'll notice, has a lot of that intimate, personal language, and when you know it's from King David, it sort of makes sense because it reflects a lot of the other psalms he writes. It also reflects the kind of relationship he had with God. If you want to read more about David and his life, the books of 1 Sam and 2 Sam, thanks Lisa, are the ones you want to go to. Okay, now it's a song or a poem, or the lyrics of a song, which is a poem, and so you'll know that in songs and in poems, we don't talk about paragraphs, we talk about verses or stanzas, okay? So there are actually four stanzas, of six verses each. It's a pretty regular, uh, very clearly structured song. Now, the big idea, and we'll go through the stanzas one by one, but the big idea, you'll probably guess already by the title of what I call this sermon, by the points there, the big idea is being known by God. All right, being known by God. Now, how do I know that's a big idea? Look at the first verse at the beginning and look also at verse 23 towards the end. Verse 1 says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Verse 23 ends with, search me, God, and know my heart. Now, you know when these guys, things are repeated at the beginning and ends, probably an indication this is the main idea. So that's the big idea. What is it like to be known by God? Now, each stanza is going to explain a little bit in beautiful poetic language what it means to be known by God. What's he like? What are we like? What does he know? So let's go. First stanza. Let me read it again. Um, and this will be a good sermon particularly to keep your Bibles open or your apps open so you can see uh, the verses that I'm reading from. So verse 1, let's go again. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind 
and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, the way that it describes how God knows what he knows is both macro and micro. It's both big picture and detail. You see, the the verbs for knowing, there's four separate ones. There's the kind of general word to know, right, knowing, and that's in the first part of verse 2 and in verse 4. But then in between, there's actually three other verbs, three other words of God knowing. And if you compare different English translations, you'll know that they kind of switch around the different translations because there's actually a lot of overlap in their meaning. But they're all words that really describe the micro, the detail of God knowing. So some translations will translate these three verbs as discern and perceive. Uh, But others will use words like measuring up or sifting. It's almost like God is like measuring you up like he does ingredients in a carefully baked cake. He knows exactly how many milliliters and how, 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 how many grams. And he's sifting you like he's sifting flour. All right, there's some of the words there too. There's also the word familiar, right? detail words. So you've got both general and detail words of knowing, macro, micro. But also in terms of what God knows, you'll see in these verses. He knows our actions, all right? He knows us sitting down, us rising up, the actions. He also knows in the second part of verse 2, our thoughts as well. Even the things that no one else can see, he sees. And by the way, if you um, skip down to verse 23 again, the psalmist, the writer says, know my anxious thoughts. Um, Just as an aside, if you ever struggle with anxiety, and sometimes your thoughts are just so overwhelming, so oppressive, can't even step out of the door sometimes because you're so anxious. You know what? God knows each of your thoughts, each of your anxious thoughts. Isn't that a, a comfort? None of that escapes him as well. That's just an aside. But he knows our thoughts, actions, thoughts. He also knows our plans. Look at verse 3, our going out, our lying down. He knows our plans, what we plan to do during the day. Before you even set out, out of the house this morning, he knew what your plans were. And then verse 4, even before you utter your words, Even as they are on the tip of your tongue, he knows them completely. God knows everything from the macro to the micro. I mean, think about it. Think about the difference between how a shareholder knows a company versus how an auditor knows a company. Some of you are accountants. I know you do auditing. A shareholder would know the company kind of in general. They would look at the prospectus. They could see uh, what the company stands for, what it invests in. They can see the trends of its shares, and they might invest because of that. An auditor will know the company down to the transactions over that financial year period. Every receipt, every in, every out. The auditor knows in micro. The investor, shareholder, knows in macro. Well, God knows both when it comes to you and me both the big picture and the details. And he knows each and every one of us here like that. So it's understandable why in verse 6, David, who wrote this song, is just, he's wonderstruck. Like, who? How can he know me like that? But also you'll notice that this kind of knowledge gives you a little bit of an inescapable feeling, like, Verse 5, he feels hemmed in or encircled is another translation. Because when someone knows you that well, you can't help but feel like, I just can't escape that kind of knowledge. Which then leads us to stanza number two. 
So let's read on, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is a really poetic way of saying that there is just nowhere that God, that God can't reach. There's nowhere that God isn't. He is all present, or the technical word, He is omnipresent. Right? You can't get away from Him. And look how He uses extremes, right? Up and down, or heaven and depths. East and west. Well, it doesn't use the word east and west, but that's the dawn on the east. The far side of the sea is the west, because if you're in ancient Israel, the sea was on your west, the Mediterranean. Right? So heaven and the depths, east and west. And when you use this extreme like this in poetry, it means everything in between as well. God is also present not just in your life. He's present even in your death. Uh, verse 8, the depths there isn't just ground. Literally, the word is Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place where dead people go, the underworld. Even then, you can't escape God. And verses 11 and 12, I think the darkness is another metaphor for death. Even the darkness of death can't hide you from God and His presence. There's just nowhere you can go where God is not. Um, in the early 20th century, atheism as a, a way of thinking, atheism is fairly new actually, but as a way of thinking, it really started to pick up momentum in the early 20th century. So the late 19th century, the 1800s, you got some pretty famous atheists like Nietzsche. Uh, but it's really in the 20th century that it began to pick up that people started thinking God is dead, God didn't exist. And atheists thought as the 20th century rolled on and technology got better, that once we were able to go up into space, what the ancients would call the heavens, and we would see that God actually isn't there in space, that therefore that would be the nail in the coffin for God. People would stop believing in God. But you see, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the two people who went on the moon first, when they got up into space and walked on the moon, they actually didn't stop believing in God. Quite the opposite. They marveled at God's creation. They knew that God was there. It didn't shake their faith. It made them stronger in their faith. Buzz Aldrin was an elder at his church. And so what he did when he got on the moon, and most people don't know this, is he had Holy Communion, what we're going to do today. The first food and drink eaten on the moon by human beings happens to be bread and wine of communion. Because God was there. And he knew it. Now you want to take a step back and remember this is an ancient song for an ancient people, Israel. Just think about for them what a huge comfort this would have been. Um, if you were here two weeks ago, I talked about how uh, this collection of songs, this playlist for ancient Israel was collected at a particular time when after they just returned from exile, right? they just lost their land, lost their temple, spent 70 years in a foreign land. They'd just been brought back to their land, but it was laid waste. They had to rebuild their cities, they had to rebuild their temple, and a lot of their people were dead or gone. Can you imagine Israel at that time? 
feeling abandoned by God, surrounded by foreigners, scattered. How much comfort this psalm would have been as they sang it. Even though it was written by David, as they sang it, it felt real for them. Because it now wasn't just David saying, there's nowhere I can go where God, you won't find me. Now they were saying, no matter where I go, God, you will find me. You see? How meaningful this would have been for the people of God in ancient Israel. No matter where I go, you will re- where we are in the world, you will regather us. Because you know us, God. And there is no place we can go that you won't find us and lead us back. And there's nowhere we can go to escape your love for us. That's this psalm. God is all present. Oh, let's go on. Uh, stanza number three, verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Um, I don't know if you noticed this stanza, this verse has a lot of weaving and knitting metaphors. You've got knitting, you've got weaving. I don't understand that. I can't even sew a button. But those of you who like doing that kind of stuff, um, hopefully this appeals to you because God is like the master craftsman and he's knitting together strand by strand every detail into every single person that he has made. That's all of us. I don't know if you've come across this before, but I saw this on Facebook. Um, the, the picture on your right is a computer-enhanced cross-sectional view of a strand of DNA. So DNA, we usually see the double helix, but if you look at it from a different point of view, sort of down the pipe, down the axis, that's what it looks like. Now the left one, just for comparison, is one of the cathedral windows from Westminster Cathedral. Isn't that amazing? One strand of DNA, and the master craftsman makes it look like that. Right? And your body is made up of all of that. But you notice also this stanza talks about God doing this right at the beginning of life, all the way to the end of life, from the womb to the tomb, really. So you've got the beginning of life, like conception, to even delivery. All right? when, when you were just a collection of unformed cells, just cells multiplying, He already knew you and He was forming you. All the way to delivery. I think verse 18, that last line is a bit cryptic. Translations um, vary a lot. But when I awake, it's probably, you can read it as when I awoke, as past tense, I am still with you. Maybe that awoke image is, you know, the person awaking or waking up from having been delivered. Maybe. All right. If that's the case, then it's conception to delivery. From the moment you were just some cells unformed to the time when... You get delivered and you face the world crying and screaming um, and you wake up, so to speak. God was with you all that way, all that process. So the beginning of life. But you see, it's also the end of life. See, verse 16, all the days ordained for us was already written. Even before you were born, God knew everything about you. He authored all of our lives. 
which means there are no accidents. There are no coincidences in any of our lives, right? All the way from birth to grave, everything, God has had a hand in it. Now, let's just stop and think for a moment, um, even how far we've come in these three stanzas. This is the picture of God's knowledge that Psalm 139 paints. What is it like to be known by God who knows you like this? I wonder how you feel now understanding that God knows you to this detail. How do you feel about it? Anyone here feel at least a little bit terrified? Because, I mean, imagine if these things that were true of God's knowledge of us was said about a government of its citizens. That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? I mean, there are some countries that are like this. The government tries to know its people and control its people like that. And that would be horrible, yeah? So it is a little bit terrifying when you think, God knows us that well. No wonder the psalmist uses words like hemmed and encircled. And... But you read a little deeper, and I don't think you get that vibe from the psalmist, do you? Like, David's not writing terrified. He's actually writing, and he's amazed. He's comforted. He's praising. He's in wonder. I mean, just in this stanza... Verse 14, I praise you. I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Any fear there is the fear of not so much I'm afraid, but awe. It's awestruck. Right? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and that makes me want to praise you. So it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. Verse 18, knowing this makes him want to know more. How precious are your thoughts to me, God? Right? So he's not terrified by God's knowledge of him. That's not the vibe of the psalm. So why is that? Why is this kind of in-depth, detailed knowledge not terrifying at all? Well, because this psalm shows us and tells us that the kind of knowing we're talking about here isn't just the macro and the micro, isn't just all present and all of life. It's really important. The kind of knowing it's talking about here is personal knowledge, intimate, personal, relational knowledge. And that's what the Bible means by knowing. It's not just knowing about. I use the um, example of an auditor. God is not just an auditor who knows about a company's last financial year and all its details. He's not just a biologist who could tell you all about that embryo in the mother's womb. That's knowing about. God certainly knows about us to every detail, but that's not the primary knowing. So here is the personal, relational knowing. This is much more like the way that I know my sons as a father, or Karen knows me as my wife. Do you see? That's the kind of knowing. It's personal, relational. And so it's not terrifying, this kind of knowledge, even to its detail, because God's personal knowledge of us is a loving knowledge. Right? He loves us and knows us. Uh, it was Pastor Tim Keller who pointed this out. He said, if a person is known but not loved, that would be terrifying, yeah? Right, if someone knew you completely but does not love you, that's scary. But what if the opposite were true? What if a person was loved but not known? Well, that's a bit of an illusion. You can't really love someone you don't know and it also leads to a different kind of fear because what if they really did know me? Then, you know, they probably wouldn't love me because what they love isn't really a picture of me. That's just as terrifying in a different way. So either to be known but not loved or to be loved but not known is terrifying, it's fearful, it's something you want to run away from. But what if we were fully known? 
and fully love. Well, that's wonderful then, isn't it? That's what we're all longing for in life, isn't it? To be fully known, warts and all, just as we are, right down to the depths, and yet to be fully accepted and loved, just as we are. That's how God loves you. That's how God loves you. That's how He knows you. He knows and loves you from the moment you were conceived, and even before that. That's supposed to be amazingly comforting. You see, you might have felt for a long time, or maybe have always felt, you don't really belong. And particularly, you think about your experiences in your family of origin, never really felt like you belonged. Friendship circles, never really felt like you belonged. You might have even felt like you were an accident. You might have even been told that you were an accident. Well, you need to know that God's Word tells you today that you're not. No matter how dislocated you feel, how odd, how different, how unlike the groups or the family that you so you're not an accident. God knew you. God knows you. Every part of you, and He loves you. And if you've lost babies, Karen and I have experienced a couple of miscarriages before they were even born or even after birth. Well, this is tremendously comforting too because even though you had no chance to really know your child, God knew them and He loves them. No matter how early on in the pregnancy they were lost, they're not lost to Him. And so we're so comforted, Karen and I. We don't know how it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. But it's a miracle. And one day we'll meet the children we lost that we never got to meet. And so will you. Because he knows you like this and he loves you. But I also need to say here, but because this is one of the passages that talks about how life does begin at conception, doesn't it? At the moment an embryo is formed, that there's life. Which actually does mean, and I want to say this carefully and gently, because I know this will be painful for some, but I think we need to say it. It does mean that abortion, without medical necessity, abortion when the mum's life isn't in danger, right? abortion because we're told nowadays it's about pro-choice and well, that kind of abortion, I think it's pretty clear from passages like Psalm 139, that's not just killing a few cells, you're, it's killing a person. So the Bible would say that that kind of abortion where medical necessity isn't a factor is sin. Again, I, I, I do know this is going to be painful for some, some people because this is maybe something that you've gone through. But if you think about it, the pro-choice logic is actually the opposite of the gospel, isn't it? The opposite of the Christian message. The, the gospel is, I sacrifice myself for your sake. Abortion, when not medically required, is, I sacrifice you for my sake. It's the opposite of the gospel. And I say this not to shame you. I say this not to lay on guilt, because chances are you feel it already. You, right? It's very rare not to be affected by 
something as traumatic as having to abort a baby. And you may already carry so much shame and guilt of that. And today I actually want to say to you that God offers you healing. And He offers you forgiveness. This is not a sin that cannot be forgiven, that Jesus did not already die for. So please know that. But as with any sin, it's not going to come about the forgiveness just by hiding it. You're going to feel freedom and forgiveness by actually confessing it, by talking about it firstly with God, honestly, openly, confessing it, saying sorry, and also talking to someone else you trust. And if you have no one else to talk to, come and speak to Karen or myself. Because you can today receive the grace of forgiveness and healing and freedom from shame and guilt in Jesus. So God knows us. He's all present over all of our lives. And finally, He's all righteous. Look at verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I don't know if you looked at this in your community groups, but this is like strange, isn't it? What a weird way of finishing a really beautiful poem. It's a little bit like, imagine lovely piano, orchestral music suddenly changing into death metal. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like, yeah? What's this bit about enemies and wanting them to, you know? Um, Okay, it's odd, I admit, and you probably noticed it if you looked at it during the week, but let's just remember that this is not the first time, it's not the only psalm where this kind of thing happens. Remember, one of the big themes of the psalm set up from the very first psalm, Psalm 1, is the idea about righteousness and God caring about righteousness and justice and how wickedness will be judged. That's part of the collection of psalms. The psalms frequently have uncomfortable bits like this that call out God's judgment or long for God's judgment on evil. Now, you guys would have heard uh, John Walsh, or hopefully you did, because three weeks ago, John preached Psalm 79, which is pretty much all about that, and he did such a great job. I ask you to listen to that sermon if you haven't already. It's online, because that talks about how do we wrestle with these ideas of God judging the wicked in these Psalms. So listen to that. I won't go through what he talked about. It's really good. But I will just say this as a sort of a, maybe a window of how it makes sense of these verses. Um, Verse 17 says that God's thoughts and ways are precious to the psalmist. See, when you are in relationship with a God whose thoughts and ways are precious to you, it stands to reason that you will love what He loves and hate what He hates. So that's maybe how these verses follow. The other way to seeing it is the last two verses, 23 and 24, really, I think, are the key. There, the psalmist is asking God to search his heart and see if there's anything in him that's wicked or offensive. And so it may be that that hatred for the wicked on the outside, right, the wicked out there in verses 19 to 22, actually is really coming from ultimately him not wanting wickedness to be in his own heart in 23 and 24. Do you see what I mean? So that's another way of seeing it. Okay, there's more there, and happy for you to talk about it more, or probably your thoughts are as good as mine. But let's... um. Let's move on. This is the psalm where we see what it means to be known by God. Now, I want to go to my second point now. 
Because all of these things that are true of God knowing us are brought even closer to home and even sharper focus when we turn to the end of our Bibles in the New Testament. And that's where I want to finish on. Just to show you how these thoughts become even better. The beauty of these verses become even more wonderful when you see its parallel. And the parallel, I think, to Psalm 139 in the New Testament is in the 8th chapter of Romans. All right, Romans chapter 8. And I actually would love for you to turn with me to Romans 8 or look it up on your app. Uh, If you've got one of those black Bibles at the uh, desk outside, it's actually on page 785. We're going to pick up the end of Romans chapter 8. So everyone turn to it because... I want us to have a look at some of these key verses, and I'll, and I'll read through them section by section, and you will see each of the four things I mentioned in point one picked up in different order, but picked up in Romans 8. And hopefully, you'll come to appreciate Romans 8 even more in light of Psalm 139. So firstly, Romans 8, let's start from verse 26. Verse 26. See which part of Psalm 139 this picks up on. In the same way, verse 26... The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Searching, knowing, Right? Romans 8 paints a picture of God who is all-knowing, like we saw in Psalm 139. But here it's talking about God's Spirit who is in God's people. If you're a follower of Jesus, God lives in you, and the Holy Spirit given to you knows and searches your heart even more than you know yourself. And that's why you can pray. Even when you haven't got the words to pray, the Spirit knows. Isn't that wonderful? Prayer becomes amazing because sometimes... You're in so much pain. And this is the context of Romans. You don't know how to pray. You don't even know how to complain. You don't even know. God knows because he searches your heart and the spirit is praying for you. Or let's read on verse 28. Let's see what idea this picks up now. Verse 28. And we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the God involved in all of your life, is he not? Not one detail of your life is left to chance. Every part of your life is working for good, which is for us to be like Jesus. And so you'll notice that salvation starts even before we were born. That's the idea of being foreknown. It's the idea of being predestined. And when he saves you, God sets off a chain of events that starts with you being saved, but ends with you being glorified, as if it's a done deal. Glorified is in the past tense. God is involved in all of your life. Isn't that amazing? Let's read on, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God 
and is also interceding for us. It asks a few rhetorical questions. Who's going to be against you? Who's going to bring any charge against you? Who's going to condemn you? Those questions are valid questions because God, as we found out in Psalm 139, is all-righteous, isn't he? Well, he's still the all-righteous God. He is still the judge, but do we have to fear? Can anyone bring charges against us? Even when your own thoughts condemn you, Romans says you don't need to feel condemned. Why? Because there's nothing to fear. Even though he is all-righteous, verse 33, God justifies us. That means he makes you righteous, not because you've earned it, not because you are righteous by your actions, but because someone was righteous in your place, Jesus, and he died in your place for your wickedness and your sin. See, through Jesus' death, we can be justified. I can be just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified means. God makes you righteous, and so there's no condemnation, verse 34. Nothing can stand against you. No one can bring charges against you because Jesus has made you right with the all-righteous judge. Isn't that amazing? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, again, please know there is no accident in you coming or starting to come. If you've come to fresh, if you're now part of next steps, like how did you, who brought you? What circumstances in your life led you to even start questioning now rather than before? None of that's an accident. God has been orchestrating everything to lead you to Him. He wants you today to have that chance to also be justified, to be made right with Him. But more than that, from Psalm 139, to to know that He knows you and loves you this deeply. So will you take the opportunity today? Because you can to come to know Him. And then let's, the last few verses of Romans 8, the, the, this is really the gold, right? This is the best part. Verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? No matter where you are, no matter how you are, From the cradle to the grave. See what it says. God is there. And he's there for you in love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are here and you are feeling in the depths of despair. If the cloud of depression is like a big black choking fog. That you can't shake off that you barely understand, you certainly feel like no one else can understand, and you feel so abandoned and you feel alone, you need to know, don't you, God is there. No matter how you feel, nothing, not even that, can separate you from His love for you. 
Because He knows you. And He loves you. And He will never, ever leave you. So who am I? Who are you? I'm known by God. You are known by God. Fully known and fully loved. There is nothing that beats that. Let's pray.